0: Welcome to the Investment Turnaround. In this podcast series, Dr. Mariana Bosazan interviews world-renowned investors, scientists,
1: and other personalities who share their solutions toward the sustainable transformation of our financial systems.
0: Today, I am interviewing actress Julia Ormond, who gained world fame when she played Sabrina vis-à-vis Harrison Ford in the movie with the same name. She's is a United Nations goodwill ambassador and a fierce anti-human trafficking advocate. Her goal is to eliminate modern-day slavery and forced labor by raising public awareness and introducing appropriate legislation worldwide. The extraordinary pleasure, pleasure to welcome to our program my very, very dear or new friend uh, Julia Ormond. She is one of my favorite actresses in the world. Uh, she played uh, Sabrina uh, with Harrison Ford in uh, in Pollock's um, extraordinary world-renowned movie. And uh, so I, we just met a couple of uh, months ago, and I'm thrilled. To have her on this program, not only because she's a beautiful, uh, wonderful lady on the outside, but uh, her uh, inside is even more uh, important and more in, important for what we are here to um, to do. Namely, have a transdisciplinarity approach toward uh, changing finance and financing change, and addressing the issues, the extraordinary grand global challenges that we have. Uh, post COVID-19 now um, they all become more obvious than before. So Julia uh, it's a great pleasure to welcome uh, you to
1: our program. Thank you and um, likewise it's uh, it's lovely to be here and lovely to be invited to a space that um, traditionally I think um, actors probably would not be Um, invited into so I I appreciate your chutzpah in in putting me forward and taking the risk Um, and to just to to just reflect back it's been lovely to get to know you in the last in the last two months and you have a you have a beautiful spirit uh, Mariana that uh, that that shines through so um, thank you thank you for inviting me and giving me the opportunity to talk about the the work
0: Yes, and your work is extraordinary in that it addresses one issue that I didn't know we have uh, Mm -hmm. on our planet in this day and age to that amazing extent, namely modern-day slavery. I learned from you that we have more than 40 million enslaved people, um, enslaved either because they're not being paid or because they are being paid too little and uh, in, in their, for the work that um, helps develop and d- design and produce some of the most expensive products in the world. And so before I continue to, uh, to ramble around, I would like to hand over to you so that you could take us uh, through uh, the program.
1: Um, so, well, I shared with you, um, I shared with you, our, our PowerPoint. So maybe before we dive into the, to the questions in terms of, uh, uh, your approach, maybe we could actually, um, is it possible for you to share it in presenter mode? There we go. Okay. So, and can you hear me? Okay. Yeah, that's perfect. All right. Oh, good. Now I can see you and I can see the deck and you don't have to see me. Um, so, uh, so I guess my journey as a storyteller was to dip in and out of uh, in, it, to dip in and out of different opportunities to participate in human rights. Um, and that was, uh, would kind of start with maybe a premier and an organization that was connected with a charity. And would you like to come to, to Sarajevo to see the school for the blind and, um, so I would dip in and out of various opportunities to volunteer or profile or spotlight, uh, different human rights, uh, issues. And, uh, over time, I, I, I then had a period in my life where I became, I think a bit disen, disenchanted with the, with our industry or felt a little bit lost. Maybe, uh, uh I think maybe you can relate to this in terms of reaching quite a high, reaching a much higher career point than I ever imagined that I would get to, even if it wasn't particularly solid, but, but not connecting with it and not, not having it be satisfying and, um, you know, sort of being in this position of having earned a lot of money, but not really feeling, uh, uh, uh not feeling touched by it or fulfilled by it. So I stepped back and I spent a good deal of time working on, uh, building up with other people, with Caroline Barron, who is the founder of an organization called Film Aid International. But over time I kept it, whether it was HIV AIDS work and messaging around HIV, HIV AIDS and taking films to refugee camps to deal with mind shift um, as a piece of it. So you have not just information, but you have mind shift and then you have storytelling coming in that helps us uh, helps us with that mind shift, but also helps us from a sort of a distance to maybe not feel defensive or overwhelmed by just information. There's something I think about storytelling that the biggest power of it is opening up your heart to it. So, so really change of behavior for me is about change, not just change of mind, but change of heart. Um, uh, and that when your heart is engaged on something uh, or you, and maybe that's too, maybe that 's unhelpful a term um, in that it sounds too soft, but I think I think when I talk about heart, what I mean is that it resonates with you as a human being that this is a moral imperative uh, so it 's not just feel good it 's about this is recognizing that this is the moral imperative and that actually i am I have a sense that I am either transgressing as a human being in terms of my the values that i want to embody in every choice that i make in the world i either have a sense that i'm transgressing or i have a sense that i'm gonna have to slightly disconnect from that or shut it off or set myself into a state of denial in order to deal with the fact that i feel disempowered to do anything else and what i discovered whether it was conflict resolution or hiv aids or 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 refugees and and we'll get to a, a slide in the deck that i hope will will cover this What i discovered was that slavery and trafficking seemed to keep popping up as a an undermining issue that undermined pretty much all of the others, uh, so it kind of laterally goes across all of these other silos of huge global entrenched issues that uh, I guess some people would describe as wicked problems that we need wise wide solutions for. And that shifted me to want to focus, uh, Film Aid International was taking off it now. uh, I think it's something like 400,000 films a year are shown to refugees and and helping with stuff and Caroline's done a great job with it. Um, But I I was then approached by the UN to get involved around trafficking and slavery. And, And it was at a time where our I think we were most conscious of it because of the numbers that were surfacing in in sex trafficking um, and what I would describe as sex exploitation. Um, and uh, but but it was it was the statistics were showing at the time um that it was something like 85 percent of it was uh was sex trafficking um, and that sex trafficking became the, the the main lens through which we regarded modern day slavery or trafficking in person so uh started working with the unadc but had very much asked can i go in and look at solutions so uh, look for solutions and advocate for solutions and and advocate for strategy um versus being the person who rocks up at an event and and tries to you know sort of look right and say all the right you know sort of nice things and then asks for money because that's really not my skill set um and out of that work what i realized as i traveled around the world um was that i was meeting and i would try and meet with every stakeholder uh i and when i when i talk about stakeholders i mean societal stakeholders so for instance it would be to meet with uh to try and meet with survivors to try it, it very rarely was i able and i will confess that uh this is definitely i feel it's a weakness of the work it's it's one of the weaknesses of, of my work anyway my experience of it very rarely have i been able to actually Talk with somebody who is in the middle of the circumstance of it, who is in situ, and I think that 's something that uh, I, w- I would say that my experience of that has come from from talking with nonprofits or charities on the ground who are actually doing that work um, but i 've met with a lot of people who have come out of slavery who 've escaped from slavery. Uh, I talk with the shelter staff and and I really went out there with I went on these trips all over the world to with kind of certain questions in mind how severe is it how sensationalized is the media representation of it is it over dramatized in terms of the extent of the violence is it um, uh, and, and and to look for solutions are there solutions to it or is this just something that's about government enforcement local enforcement and not really anything to do with me um and and so uh i would go to places like uh my, one of my first most profound trips was to lake volta in ghana and uh we uh, in, in lake volta has discovered the child slavery because of the uh local africans uh were conscious of the numbers of children's bodies that were washing up on on the shores which is a horrific thing to think about especially when you, you know we think about uh, people, the, the impact of that image of the child on the beach um, from people trying to cross the Mediterranean. There is something about drowning as a death and and a child in that that is really heartbreaking. Um, so local Africans have, through a non profit called Apple had reached out and and, it, and and I had gone to connect with them to connect with local people to go to this uh, to this lake to see it in situ. And Walter is. Um, a man-made lake and when and part of the problem is that when they made the lake they didn't clear the trees so these children are put into, uh, are pushed into into the water which is often dangerous to dive down to disentangle the nets uh, fishing nets from the branches of the trees um, and they describe how they're quite dangerous waters and sometimes the fish is the size of their arm span uh, and that one of the children, uh, more than one actually, described how what they had to do is they had this technique that they would teach each other as children to squeeze the eye socket of the fish uh, 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 because that would still the fish. And um, I think calm is probably the wrong words if it's having its eyes squeezed in, but it had a, an effect on the, on the fish to, to calm it. And you had to not get your fingers trapped in the gills because then the fish would overpower you and that was how they would drown. Um, So horrific things in children describing how they would go from one master to the other very traditional uh, slavery terms used Uh, and those Those nonprofits I would ask them about the terminology. How do you feel about the term trafficking? How do you feel about the term modern-day slavery? Is it helpful? Is it not? Is it not helpful and and Actually, brought back footage of people saying, "This is slavery." Modern-day slavery makes it sound as if it went away and it resurfaced. This is slavery. This is the slavery of old. It is, it's, it's yes, okay, it's illegal, but it's gone underground. There's there is there's a different face to it, but it's still it's still slavery. Um, and I actually took it to Congressman John Lewis, who marched with Martin Luther King, to say, "Can I just when you I'm showing you this footage of these kids all over the world." Um, can I have your permission to just use the term slavery because people understand it. And When I talk about trafficking, people say, Oh, do you mean like trafficking and drugs? And i am kind of like, well, yes, yeah, that, but actually it's people. And they go, Oh, you mean sex trafficking? And in the end I was like, no, 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 this is, this is slavery. And everywhere I went, I'd be talking about these kids and great meeting with people doing great work, rescuing and rehabilitating and, and bringing the children into shelters where all over the world, people who work in the shelter system uh, will talk about the fact that one of the things that they look for in a child or in that's an indicator for them is the, the degree to which that human being, that child, that adult can smile. And when they bring them into uh, the shelters, um, sometimes it'll take a month for them to be able to, to smile. And to trust the space, uh, but trust is definite. trust and safety, uh, I think, in the shelter system is something that uh, is very much needed if we are to evolve into the best version of ourselves. These, these, these issues of empathy and trust and compassion and forgiveness they all come into, into play in terms of uh, restoring somebody, healing healing somebody bringing 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 you back to bringing you back to yourself um and i would ask on these trips i I would ask on these trips whether it was people that i met who were in mining people who i met who were in carpet making or or fishing i would have this uneasy sense that would surface and i would say but where does this fish end up is there any chance that it would have ended up in europe like i you know was brought up on fish fingers and that sort of thing as a kid and um where does this fish end up and and people would always look away they would always they would look away they would look on the, to the ground they would the, and then they would say we don't really know um, but you always had the sense that the what they were also saying is we don't really want to know or or it's easier for us not not to know um, and i used to come home thinking gosh I because it's quite it's quite a dark thing to be exploring it's quite a heavy thing to be exploring and I used to uh, on the trips be kind of like there I would have my moments of this is so sad and devastating and I can't believe how resilient and amazing and and inspiring these people are but I just can't wait to get home uh, and to back to my life and sense of freedom and then the more that I would see or hear these stories and get the sense of Oh, so this could be the fish i 'm eating. Oh, this could be my carpet, or this could be my clothing, or this could be components that are in my phone or my and I would and more and more as I walked into my living room and my home I, I would I would just be aghast and kind of uh, this, if I were to strip away everything so that I was just left with the stuff that I knew where it came from, and I knew who what the circumstances were of the person who'd made it or participated in the farming or the mining I'd be left with nothing Because I don't know and, and what we do know is that slavery is yes the largest numbers than ever before uh, But also the smallest percentage of the population on the planet. So on one way from one perspective, we're getting better uh, and that's perhaps one way with which in a really, I don't believe in the philosophy, but in a, in a really, in a small way, trickle down or, you know, we are improving the lives of the majority, but also because the population is exploding at such a rate, we also have more people than ever who are in poverty. And I think now because of technology and how the world is changing and connectivity, um, now there's a visibility where... You know, perhaps we used to have, I'm not, I guess I regard myself as spiritual and I had a Christian upbringing, but you know, there is something about religion where there is a role that God or gods play of watching us and we have a sense of being watched. And in the social sciences, they would call this the panopticism and the panoptic effect of, we are better when we have a sense that we are being watched. Uh, well, we now live in a world where we are watching each other. Um, you can be in Istanbul and, and uh, you know, sort of Marrakesh or somewhere, and you'll see somebody who's got very, uh, very modest uh, living quarters and a satellite dish, and they're watching, you know, Dallas or something. on. And, and so this, uh, we do live in a time where there's enormous divide, but we also are more conscious than ever of the divide. And I think that has greatly impacted the movement of people. So that was an extremely long introduction, but I hope that as, I, as we go through, I'll refer back to it in a way that um, uh, hopefully will make sense of where I see you, I hope, I hope to kind of simplify through that. Uh, Marianna, through thank you for giving me, giving me the time to sort of talk through that piece of it. Um, so what I wanted to do, what, when I talk to people about it, people are very often have the same response, uh, as, as yourself in terms of, I didn't realize that this was really such a big issue still. Um, and, and myself included, and I've gone through the journey of realizing, oh my goodness, when I talk to people about it, I I'm yet to meet, I'm yet to meet somebody who's okay with slavery. Sometimes people are pragmatic in response to it and say, well, you know, you can't, what do you do you know and it's kind of it's like and I think first what you do is is to acknowledge that that's completely unacceptable and it's unacceptable because we have a relationship to it and we are connected to it and therefore those of us who while somebody is being oppressed by it there are others of us who benefit from it so if you find yourself in a beneficiary camp then it is i believe it is beholden to you around not just a moral imperative but if you want to thrive as an individual uh, you know when 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 martin luther king talks about injustice anywhere as a threat to justice everywhere i think this is absolutely at the heart of what he meant um, so i set up a nonprofit uh, called the Alliance to Stop Slavery and End Trafficking. And our mission was to focus, while many, many people were doing the amazing work on uh, abolishing sex trafficking, uh, we found that the niche that I really wanted to focus on was to be able to answer the question, what do I buy? Uh, and to to sort of join many people in a movement who have, have uh, I guess, really created the aspirational in the person who believes that they their... Uh, uh, what do I buy is a, a way with which we express our identity. It's a way with which I take my inner values and I, and I make a choice in the, in the outside world uh, that has a, either a butterfly effect or if you believe in chaos theory, it's like, yes, I buy this thing. Um, I buy this product and uh, it's devastating to both people and planet or I buy this product. And it actually sends a kid to school because it gives a mother a wage or it, and it enables a citizen to take part in a tax system. Um, there's, there's, it's purely based on what we buy all over the planet. You could be Indian or you could be in Bangladesh, you could be in Cambodia, you could be in Vienna, you could be in London. Whatever we buy in the world, we are voting for the world that we want. And I think for me over time with help from other people to sort of articulate more expediently, more efficiently, what, what we're doing is we're kind of acknowledging that we live in a world where, yes, we have government, but also corporations have uh, have a parallel level of power, if not more, uh, and, and the power comes with responsibility that has somewhat been overtaken as a system, I think, not, by, not for everyone, but I think it's very easy for that responsibility to skew to profit. Uh, and sh- and short-term uh, shareholder demands and people who are in and out on your territory of, of pushing profit up and, and short-term delivers, which which have blocked us and trapped us, uh, especially if you have fiduciary responsibility to to seek that profit. It's trapped us into a system that finds profit in in negative and harmful ways that that aren't decoupling from. Limited finite resources, so I think that 's one of the things that 's really uh, that 's really beautiful about your your model in terms of what you 're looking at in terms of, uh, of of investment in the six ps your six p 's uh, definitely reflect um, the three p 's of protection. Uh, prevention and prosecution that is the u n approach around anti trafficking um, i think i i think i 've ended up much more in in the quarter of um, what is it it 's the parity, parity of planet and people Uh, with passion and purpose. I think that is absolutely for me the solution and the positive. That is the organic version of pesticide free. So a slavery free supply chain is kind of like advocating that something is pesticide free as as an equivalent and um, social impact for me, 100% social impact by nature of it. And This is where we have to bring slavery and forced labor and child labor uh, into the social impact agenda much more solidly um, I think when you have 100% social impact you will have 0% slavery so that's a very very long-winded answer uh, to how we've what we work on an asset and, and we've started to call ourselves asset instead of alliance to stop slavery and, and trafficking because Uh, we're shifting towards the positive. I think it's really time for people to understand that there are solutions out there. The solutions need resourcing and bringing together to work in concert. Um, And and everyone, every human being on the planet should be an asset to society and has that within them, whatever their life, whatever their life experience, whether you've been criminalized, whether you've been uh, whoever, whoever you are, whatever your history, you have the ability to turn and, and to become an asset. You are an asset already. Um, So we work to unlock solutions that will prevent slavery and we focus on systemic, systemic change. We've always focused on systemic change. And for me, that's an agenda that is also, if we are, if we are following an agenda to end slavery, we are following an agenda to spread human rights, uh, to bring dignified work to decent work to all people on the planet. And if I were to say, where are the, where are the enslaved people? Where are all these 40 million people that I feel like I, I, I don't interact with or don't have the experience necessarily of seeing well they're in the supply chain. They're in the supply chain is our, you know, from farm, farm to store, to table, uh, to restaurant to, to local supermarket. And it's from mine to whatever it is that you are, you are using that has these raw materials in it. Um, so for me, it's about voting. If we become overwhelmed in a society because, and I think there is something that's very overwhelming, particularly in, in turmoil, where it feels as if too many of us are unhappy most of the time. Um, because either the person that you have wanted to get in has succeeded to get in in government, um, and you are, you are happy, but at the same time, you're quite quickly disgruntled about what they can actually achieve in government. Um, Uh, or you are completely shocked and horrified and despondent about what's happening and and the losses. So it feels as if government uh, all over the world has very little ability to progress along human. That would be my interpretation of it. And I believe that corporations actually have much more ability to be flexible and to be Uh, And to change. And then I would go on to say that the small company has much more flexibility than the big, big company to actually embed new technology, new innovation uh, to demonstrate it and then and then scale. So I believe that we're actually voting for the world we want every time we open our wallet. I know that that's something that other people think is unrealistic, but for me, that's actually at the heart of what we do. So now let's try and move through a bit quickly, instead of, we've, we've stuck, on, stuck on this one, and I hope you get the, the key, where the key is the solution, and, and very much solutions, so to me, are about turning it around and starting somewhere, but turning it around. So if we could go to the next, the next slide, I think you might have to scroll So this is our definition. This is uh, our definition of slavery. I don't know if it can, maybe we go back, there we go. Uh, So we describe slavery as when one person completely controls another, uses violence or violent threat to maintain that control, exploits them economically, paying them effectively nothing. Now, I read something recently in terms of what has been going on with George Floyd and, and, and in America with the very belligerent Uh, murder of someone who I think, I think what was very specific about the George Floyd killing that touched so many of us was it was yet another murder that was filmed on camera, that was belligerently filmed on camera. There's no real effort to stop the filming of it, Um, not resisting arrest. In fact, the guy that, uh, the guy that had, uh, was doing it has his hands in his pocket um and uh his glasses are still on the on the top of his head um marianne i'm going to turn off my notifications so that i'm but i've lost my i seem to have lost my screen of what we're actually looking at no there we go sorry um so there was a belligerence around it and what i uh, one of the things that we are now looking at is this uh, systems' change in terms of government and department of justice, and how that that unfolds to, uh, that unfolds to prison systems and police there are, there are these uh, systems, but they are also about procurement and forced labor and the language that we have in all documents uh, in in America that speaks leans into the Thirteenth Amendment. And it says that because people are paid a small amount of money, and in some states in the U.S., it's uh, it's less than a, a, a dollar an hour or a dollar a day. It's, it's ridiculous amounts of money that people are enabled to be paid under the circumstances of prison labor. Um, and I noticed in writing about it that people were saying that um, people were saying that because prisoners got paid something effectively nothing 25 cents an hour uh then that didn't classify as slavery but in my in my definition and i don't know maybe as an expert i'm wrong on this or, or maybe my expertise isn't sufficient enough but uh you know there's lots of people who are trapped in sex trafficking who for instance are given a small amount of money there are people in debt bondage people are given money but then it's offset with the system that uh says they never get to pay it back because of the interest or because of what they owe and and they're trapped in the system. So for me, slavery absolutely can be, uh, you know, the forced labor in the prison system is absolutely slavery today and that there is a very direct line and connection in terms of what is happening today on the ground in America in terms of prison labor uh, and what is happening racially uh, and being enabled by by government and, and through government procurement. Practices, And I think that's what that's what people are looking at in that in that perspective. Um, And the way to deal with that is transparency and accountability and reform. So our work, however, had had originally in 2007 when we started, we started looking at supply chains. Uh, We have data today that says there's 40 million people enslaved in the world and 24.9 million of them are in forced labor that those are people making our stuff. Um, There are there are millions of children in child labor. Uh, 73 million of them are in hazardous child labor and when you look at it's this 150 billion that is in the global economy that is take that is should be redistributed back to the people who are enslaved that's our stolen money so these two different narratives of reparations of what's happening in terms of race and uh you know that we have we have just stepped up around reparations at, uh, asset and looking at looking at looking at how reparations would be payback or or, um, supporting the legislation that appropriates some money to to look into that. This 150 billion that is taken from the global economy, that is stolen money as a result of us still being trapped in racist systems. Um, and, And slavery in the past was an aberration of how we traded Um, And slavery today is an aberration of how, how we trade. Can we go on to
0: Yeah, I have a question with respect to the 73 million uh, children in labor.
1: Yeah.
0: How does that relate to the 40 million enslaved are they part of
1: that or in part of so There are these overlaps. There are these overlap. strange overlaps that I think emerge in terms of how we deal. Different departments within the UN, you have the International Labour Organization that uh, would deal with child labour. I'm not, it's, a, it's a, a brilliant question. I'm not entirely certain how the 40 million or the 24.9 million that are people enslaved or defined as enforced labour actually ties up with the 73 million that are in child but I think these are statistics that are confusing. They are statistics that on an international level, I think people would acknowledge that they are incomplete. they The tip of the iceberg are traditional narratives that you hear around the statistics. Um, but there's also, there are different departments that, to, that cover different things. Um, so I think, and I think sometimes they talk about the severity of the problem. Um, but yes, you're absolutely right. The numbers don't add up, that we have 73 million in child labor. Um, and uh, I think it's because people have a different lens through which they, they look at it. But I think for me, if that, if that answers the question, the question for you, rather ineffectively, because there's, I would say that there is some overlap and there is some extension. Um, and I think the people who are putting together one aspect of the figures are not necessarily extending it out to the others. There's a bigger figure, which is 150 million in child labor. Uh, so they are, they are, there are different definitions. There is a different definition around, um, around child labor. But one of the things that I think is really, it was an epiphany and a shift for me, was that child labor is not something that is a function uh, just a function of poverty you know is is one of the reasons that we have child labor in the in in the world poverty yes absolutely but much more importantly and I think this leans into the mind shift that we need to that we need to uh, to take on board child labor causes poverty um, child. When you trap a child in labor, you are, firstly, you are depriving that child of its schooling and its education. Secondly, you are depriving an adult of a job that should be a legitimate job. You're also depriving uh, government of taxes. Uh, so the presence of child labor is a marker and an indicator of the degree to which we are oppressing people if we are not getting into the system enough to identify them and, and change the system. That is also, um, I, don't, I don't know to what
0: degree that is being counted within the, the context of uh, inequality and how that uh, impacts um, the society. Um, the other question is, uh, I'd like some more clarification on the 150 billion in illegal profits, can you, relate a
1: little bit more detail to that? Um, well, the, so these are figures that have come out of uh, the, the walk free and their, uh, their work with the ILR. And, and for me, the 150 billion, I think one of the solutions that I would lean into is to be very specific as to where that 150 billion comes from. Is that 150 billion that is Money that is accrued from uh, people who are in domestic service and and or even child marriage. That there's is there an evaluation in the psalm and a figure that is put to that? Um, does it relate to specific countries? I think it does because for me that is this 150 billion is our to me is our our modern day. Uh, stolen money that we have to identify where it needs to go uh, go back to. Um, but I have not, I'm not a researcher, and mm-hmm. I, I, I haven't uh, participated in the data. But my presumption is that to the degree and to the extent that it is the best data that we have, and I think that is distinct to the best data that we could get, um, uh, I think that's the best data that that we have, and I also think it's institutional data. I think you know there was a time when the movement was very much following and supporting a particular NGO or a particular take, and now we have uh, a, a much better institutional reports coming out, where you have the, the UN and, in particular, the ILO, International Labour Organization, coming together with the main philanthropists and 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 putting out the. Uh, I think it's the Global Slavery Index is, is what it's called. So the degree that honing in on that figure and where that figure comes from and can we get greater accuracy on that and the relationship between that and transparency, I do think is is one of the key elements that we need to get to in in terms of flipping a model where You know, there are different ways that people respond, react to that 150 billion. It's kind of like, oh, my goodness, does that mean there are some people who look at it from the prosecution side of things? And this is the three P's, the three P's of UNODC in terms of, you know, sort of we're up against business that is making 150 billion. If you look at transnational organized crime, I think it's much more that it's mom and pop, small Industries and small circumstances of people who are stressed economically around the world. Um, but actually, just understanding it helps us take it from this notion that we have to raise 150 billion in order to compete on the same level as transnational organized crime or, or or to believe that we have to I think it, I think with HIV AIDS there was a moment where Kofi Annan and Jeffrey Sachs and Peter Piot formed UNAIDS and came out with the global fund needs of you know we're currently we've currently got something like 26 million or whatever coming out of the US government and actually we need to be public about the fact that we need 11 billion a year to tackle HIV AIDS as a as a pandemic um, to me, the 150 billion, when you look at it in terms of child labour and slavery, the epiphany is no, that is actually current stolen money. That is what we are stealing. That is that is a marker. Not just of what we have to raise through the philanthropic sector or through charity and work out how to spend and all the rest of it and, and do the work of partnership. That is right now that $150 find needs to be found on some level in our, through our trade and through evaluation and then given back. Because if such a high percentage is, let's say, in India, then if I were the prime minister of India, I would say give it back give it back and i'll make a pledge that i will put it into restructuring and remedying um and and moving people forward into you know sort of different environmental uh holding people to the different esg standards or or that's that's money that we need as an economy to bring us into bring us into line with all of these uh, the you know paris accord and esg standards and all the rest of it um, so that's a bit harsh. And that's something that's, I think, not going, to be, not going to be popular. But I also think it's the bottom line of this is something that I think is an imperative and a priority uh, if we are to be really transformative, especially around social justice, if we're going to take it seriously. And if we're going to actually, um, you know, I know that there's, uh, you have questions about short term, midterm and long term. Talking about 2050 doesn't actually line up with we have 10 years left.
0: The 10 years left, um, is that a question or a statement? Because of- uh, Well, I I mean, just throw it out there because- We have 10 years to get ready so that we will be sustainable on the planet uh, by 2050. So we need, we have 10 years to set up our systems such that we become within the planetary boundaries that we become sustainable.
1: Yeah, but I think also it's, I I think in also in our sector, what we see is 10 years left before we reach a tipping point. And I think for me, the priority is probably in oceans and probably what we see in terms of fishing. Uh, and it's totally
0: boundaries. There are nine of them. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, um, yeah. So let's. Uh, did that answer your question on the on the 150 billion? I think you would need to drill into the global slavery index and the methodology and out what their framework was around the methodology. But I would also say that I think uh, I think we have to be careful about narratives that we have to be conscious that while everybody wants to be positive about the work. That there is a big difference between this is the best data that we have, and this is the best data that we could get.
0: Yeah, the question I'm uh, the reason I'm asking this question is because um, I'm just uh, part of this um, initiative uh, where millionaires for higher taxes, and uh, so that means giving back. The question is who and you know, who is responsible for this 100 million? Um, because I'm afraid that those who are willing to give back are not those who are actually, uh, you know, the cause.
1: But uh, so that's, something, that's something that we can either say, I can either unpack a bit here, or we could circle back to when we get to- Yeah. What's uh, there's the question? there's questions, but I think when you get to the taxonomy, if I can go through the philosophy yeah, of it- let's let's do that. And it, might, it might make more sense so but yes I'm thrilled that there are uh people out there so I'm not sure if that so here we go so the work that we're doing is to create the sorry. market economy <laughs> um there
0: we go so the system is so um the response so quickly I that should have it. sent
1: it uh, Perfect. All right. So we're working to create the market economy to end slavery. And this is a much more, to me, it's a much more positive. Um, it's, it's aspirational in its, uh, well, I hope it's more than aspirational. I hope it's actually something that can be implemented. So we're still working towards what do I buy? Because the more that we can say, this is what you buy to have the positive, To have positive impact in the world versus this is what, if you are buying this, it is negative impact. I think part of it is myth busting around things like, ah, but, and this speaks to your earlier question about tax and who gets taxed or who gives back, who is responsible for giving back. I would say it's not about who's responsible for giving back. It's about who's responsible for taking it in the first place. So let's stop taking it and stealing it in the first place and and work that bit out. Uh, And perhaps the giving back can be more about influence and pressures that are put on the rest of the world in terms of this has to stop. Um, And this has to sort of raise up in priority. Uh, But for me, the prosecution model, if you have 40 million people who are enslaved and you can break that down into how many people need to be arrested, that is absolutely not where I would spend the money. I would not throw you know, people into prison and put the money into prosecution when you could be putting the money into education and grants and lifting people up. So part of creating the market economy to end slavery is to ensure that people have viable business. We talk about sustainable business, but sustainability, when I look at it as a model, it actually needs, we need to have not fixed prices because I know that I mean, I'm not an economist at all, I'm a consumer, um, but I, uh, fixed prices I know uh, are, are not good, not good for society uh, frowned upon. Um, but I think it's good to have humane, viable floor prices. Uh, And I think having economists look at every different tier of the supply chain from the store, from the people who work in the store, for everybody who is in that workforce, whether you're a miner, whether you're a farmer, whether you are local, whether you are national, whether you are international in terms of your supply chain, every step of the way, we should be able to work out, this is what makes it a viable business, this raw material, if, if if collectively, whether it is intentional or not, some of it I think is, is unintentional. But nevertheless, we, are by, we need to understand our own bias around are we letting this happen? Are we just going the easiest route? Because actually, our laws are based in quite racist systems and racist approaches. Um, so, uh, yeah, so for me, it's about believing in the, the, the consumer. The consumer who sits locally in a town or nationally in a country is actually a global citizen this is how you vote you vote through consumption as a global citizen um so maybe let's go on to the next if we can so yes click again so transparency and supply chains law but uh, asset was the source of transparency and supply chains law we took it to, we took the issue in the footage to sacramento we met with darrell steinberg um, I think if you click again, it'll, this is, this slide is slightly, yes. So, so, so it's a, so the transparency and supply chain is basically human rights disclosure law. Um, it, it accepts, um, something that is not particularly comfortable to accept, which is that it's not my job to persuade every single business person on the planet that it is their job to end slavery. They have a right as an individual, uh, uh, and, and it's, it, it, this is a, I guess this approach. I think in some countries, you would say if you find slavery in your supply chain, then you are beholden to, you are beholden to fix it. Um, I'm not sure that that necessarily actually is true legally, internationally. Even though slavery is illegal, I think there are there are complications around it where. you hit this. You hit this area of ah, oh, but we're providing jobs around the world, which is good for economies. But I think at the same time, the more we look into it, the more we realise that our systems are actually more oppressive than they should be. And um, so, so the best that we can do is instead of uh, instead of telling companies what to do. I'm not a supply chain expert. I'm just a, a mom, a volunteer, and a consumer. I'm not a supply chain expert. I'm I'm not a CSR person or somebody in in that. You have my dog coming coming in behind me. Um, uh, But I do have a right as a consumer to know what the policies are for people and planet. And that, for me, is where where transparency comes in. Uh, And ideally, and obviously in California, it was very early stages, and it was a first step. It was really a foot in the door. Um, uh, of getting a piece of legislation in that our hope was then to maybe go federal then maybe go to to other countries and, and upgrade as it went around the world. Um, but ultimately ending enslavement, as I said, is a vehicle, it's a way to harness this network and connectivity of the supply chain that is all around the world and always has been, even in the transatlantic slave trade. It's about moving forces and, and, and commodities all over the world um to deliver human rights and 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 now we have this blessing of technology which i think has delivered more than all of the jumping up and down and angst and upset and anger and grief Uh, there's something extraordinarily exciting in terms of ai and what it could deliver if used in the right way and in, in in concert with 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 dialogue and discussion and people so let's go on to the next
0: Uh, there's a delay in with which my system responds. That's okay. Okay.
1: So, so ending. I'm not sure if we didn't jump some, but uh, so today, what we are working on. Ah, so this is the. Yeah. So, the Development International is a uh, a non-profit based out of Berlin, uh, where they are using uh, sort of B two B Software solutions to to uh, to help help companies with their compliance and to get a better score, um, and and so we worked with them and we explored with them a partnership that uh, around around evaluation. But this is their data. Uh, they have a, a great deal of integrity. Like them a, a lot. We unfortunately were not able to raise the money that we wish we had. Uh, uh, to work with them and do the evaluation, but but also at the same time, we learned a lot about the evaluation process. But this data that came from them, this is this is old data from 2016. This shows transparency in supply chains, California, that the evaluated 1,961 companies that were the companies that they identified under the uh, uh, in the, in that they identified as being subject to the law. Although I think there are people in the movement who would question, question the uh, question, what's coming out of the attorney general's office around that is actually 64% of world wealth in terms of combined global revenue. So that it's not, uh, it shows a level of influence by just our ability to focus on just the companies that are subject to the law Um in California. uh, And we are looking at and hoping to do a revisit in California because as I think I think there is an opportunity as transparency and supply chains has proliferated and spread around the world. uh, I think it's now really time to align and scale and to actually have it be more effective by simplifying it and making it easier. I think it's really, really important to to have a consciousness that if we really want it to be about impact on the ground, it has to shift away from policy and uh, and to actually get into program and and to measurement, to real measurement of impact instead of measuring does your policy sound better than the other person's and and finding better ways better ways to better ways to measure uh, to measure what's really happening. Um, but what I love love, 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 is that it means that you have less than 2,000 CSR departments to work with to leverage huge change. Um, there's, and to me, it's very exciting because, you know, yes, okay, so maybe the US walked and reneged on promises around the Paris Accord and, and you know, America's relationship to the rest of the world is is very up in the air, and I think there's also an uncertainty in terms of how could a political system vacillate so massively around something that's this essential? How could it be so simple as just this person gets in and then just walks away? How could that happen just because they have a different opinion Uh, when they 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 were supposed to occupy this slot of such extraordinary level of leadership? um so okay so that has happened so part of the five stages of grief is okay that happened um but there's still california there's still california as uh, a very very progressive state um with a terrific governor who uh uh, and uh, there's still enormous to me possibility of leveraging transparency to bring in the ethics the compliance ethics around these these other things that are evolving and, and coming coming to fruition in, in Europe, especially around the pandemic. And I think transparency revisited in California could really be, uh, could be a cohesive bond across the other side of the world in terms of how globally companies relate that that has more of a global reach. Um, but I was, I'm still surprised by this figure of the 64%. Well, we don't know, because transparency, especially in terms of the transparency legislation that was done in California, the, the systems change. So it's probably relevant for about three years, and then it needs to change and become iterative. So one of the things about the UK transparency and supply chains piece that's at the heart of the Modern Slavery Act is iterative reporting, which I think is something that was a fabulous upgrade that Unseen UK led on, in, in that there has to be an annual update and, and iterative reporting. And I think amendments around transparency could could really uh have potential to look at that in terms of now you have this legislation in what does it look like each year what are the innovations that we've gotten to what is the new thinking uh and and one of the things that we were unable to get through in california uh with the legislation was a um was a commission. And the commission was meant to be made up of all the different stakeholders, uh, uh, including survivors and workers. Uh, Basically, if you were a survivor, you should have been a worker. Um, It has to include the worker voice. Uh, It can't just be the top. It can't just be, or I would be suspicious that something that was, uh, I think if you go back one, you'll go back again, try going back again, yeah, there's a couple that I think we should... Okay, stop there. Try and stop there. <laughs> Try and stop there. So this is our story in terms of this is the work that we did. I like I like that we came back to this one, Mariana, because there's a lot of discussion about voluntary and, oh, this should work on a voluntary basis. Basically what we had prior to, and I, I don't know that we can... I don't know that we can determine really the the... Uh, causality of transparency versus just the, the sort of correlated or same timing I think I think there is something about collective consciousness and people evolving in their thinking together you know it's uh, uh, what is it the 100 monkeys principle uh, so we founded in 2007 and we set up a platform where as a consumer is a concerned consumer, as a conscious consumer uh, a participant in conscious capitalism, let's say, um, you, can, you could click on a brand button and generate an email that would go to that brand. And so by 2010, through Chain Story Action, which has now become Slavery Footprint, um, we, we, you could generate a letter to the brand that that rallied around the asks of the legislation, which was, and the legislation asked was really a reflection of the ILO Uh, ILO recommendations at the time so we started with that in 2007 Um, so each of these each of these emails was the same email to the two brands so there was a consistency around it it wasn't just random people sending emails so we have we have a data point this is this is our research this is our baseline of how well was voluntary working this is very important so to me it's important it shouldn't impose upon you that it needs to be important to you but to me this is very important and relevant so we had sent sixty-seven thousand concerned consumer emails to 780 different brands and we had received 58 responses so that is either depending on the experience that you bring to the table that is either the hubris and arrogance of companies and brands or it is a reflection of legal systems that trap brands and trap the best actor in the space from being able to step out and say, we have this really huge problem with child labor. This is what we have been trying over years to do to fix it. This is working, this isn't working. This isn't working because we hit competitive price points with this other actor in the space that couldn't care less about it. Um, so we're, we're trapped in the system of not really knowing how do we deal with it. We don't know what that, we don't know until we move forward, what, to what degree the 58 responses are from the bad actor in the space or the good actor in the space? We don't. Until you hit the level playing field and an assessment over this entire level playing field, can we really get to the bottom of good, what good, better, best, and pretty weak, and then lethal looks like? And those are that's what we really need to measure. So by and then by the beginning of September, I had a staff member, Chris, Chris Miller. Uh, who brought in the social responsible investor group. Uh, And and so they were the only business to actually support the bill to enable the governor to sign it. And um, in all honesty, I am not sure that Governor Governor Schwarzenegger would have signed the bill had he had a future to become the president. He was not born in the US, so he doesn't have a political future to go on from Governor of California to become president. And I really wonder if that was the one thing that enabled him to sign it. Because, you know, we live in a system where the relationship between governments and, and corporations means good luck having a government career in, when you are trapped in a system that is utterly dependent on either corporations and corporate money and, and the, the pressures of that or, or trying to extract yourself from the pressure of the lobbyist um, or it's wealthy individuals who have made their money through uh, through a system that is that is doing this um so by the end of september uh september 30th i believe the governor signed signed the legislation Um, and he said that he he gave us this great quote and that he was asked to veto the bill by saying that it was a a job killer Um, and he said it's not a job killer it's a lifesaver so i thank him heartily for that quote i thoroughly agree i'm very proud of that uh, but all of a sudden we jump into having these 1,900. that we have a level playing field. So we have a level playing field that is not about voluntary. It's, it's not about the limitation of a few people, a few good actors having to be so courageous that they wave a little white flag over the parapet and over the trenches to come up and be attacked by everybody left, right and center because they haven't done enough. Uh, we. It, it, this is what gets us out of, and this is the spirit of transparency, is to get us out of this ridiculous circumstance of, you know, as, as advocates, I've often stepped up into the space to say that this is in every, virtually every country and virtually every supply chain. It is, and um, fair trade, even as a philosophy, is great and it's an extraordinarily high standard. Um, but fair trade needs there needs to be an easier way for the startup or the small company to ramp on to those standards and it also needs to be understood that it's about verifying a process and monitoring a process Um, but you cannot there's no such thing and I think this is where possibly we deviate from other actors in the space other other NGOs to me, there's no such thing as a slave-free supply chain. It's a nice ideal to move towards, but I guess in our, I guess in terms of what we're doing, that's our version of a world without prostitution. That's our version of, um, you know, corruption-free government. Do we believe that corruption free-government exists? Well, no, because there are corrupt individuals, right? We have awful things that happen to us or calamities and we're flawed as human beings and we, we have weaknesses that potentially tip any of us, the most wealthy person in the world, as well as the poorest person in the world, into, in, into flawed human behavior and corruption. But what we have is what we have to have in its place, a robust and efficient and concise measured processes in terms of of how we are uh uh, so that protect us so we can we work towards having a corruption free government and we work towards having slave free supply chains Um, but it is about measuring our practices of good better best Um, so now the sri community um uh, we worked with unseen in the uk who immediately picked up the legislation and started it off as a private members' bill in the UK with Andrew Wallace from Unseen is the is the CEO. We worked very closely closely with him, but uh, he has to be given all, a great deal of credit for upgrading upgrading the legislation. And and what we found was there were certain things that were helpful in terms of our local experience or national experience or state experience in California, um, but there were certain things that weren't relevant and certain things that the UK through different multilateral law. Uh, applications of law and different different laws that surround business Um, but one thing that he did do or that the UK upgrade does is it kicks the responsibility up to board level which is um, interesting it it has also I think Andrew won't be happy that I'm criticizing it but um, or flagging it up there is a slight sense that that kicks it down into legal into the legal department and risk management and that's where the SRI community it's interesting because there are, I think when you look at impact investment, uh, there are different degrees of it in terms of philosophy. There is some there is some SRI investment figures that for me are not necessarily about moral imperative. Uh, and that's not to be judgmental about that. It's different approaches, but some of them are engaging over not wanting a brand hit. Um, and I think that, I actually think that's legitimate. I think that one of the one of my frustrations with the issue, one of my frustrations is how as an advocate who has spent time with survivors who are so inspirational and so resilient, you do tend to walk away if you spend a good deal of your time on that with the sadness and the grief and it's frustrating and it's upsetting. Um, it's hard to Lay that at the door. So the temptation of a brand hit when you have found something is pretty high. Um, but I think what we would advocate for, and we have never, I don't believe, ever brand, brand hit, gone for a brand hit or focused in on brands, despite many an invitation to join in that. In that. To me, uh, brands are limited by what is the activity or the level of engagement within their silos as industries. So you can talk about the industry. But until we have had the resources which we've never been given in the space until we have the resources to actually really assess people across the level playing field. It doesn't work. So I'm hoping that we can go on to the next slide and stop on the promise of transparency slide.
0: I'll just uh, I don't know when the system kicks in and see if I if I do it too often. Then
1: yeah. Oh, there we go. Okay, so let's try and see. so the premise of transparency, key and critical to it is enabling this level playing field, right? Because, because you have sort of some actors in the space who, you know, we're all in various different states of denial. So it's not surprising to me that when you go to business and say, are you aware of forced labor in the supply chain? Is that they'll say, no, we don't have that. Um, so transparency means that actually people have to uh, the nature of transparency is about uh, accountability around something that's uncomfortable. It's about opening up. It's about, it's about sharing your strengths and stretches. Perhaps Uh, it's very hard for corporate to talk about mistakes versus epiphanies. You know, it's sort of, there is, they're, they're caught in something, but when you have a level playing field, uh, I think one of the things that happens is because the issue is under resources, there's a tendency to assess in depth the top 40. Um, Well, that's great, but there are close to 2000 companies that we're supposed to be assessing. So I would be pretty bummed if I was the brand that was on the bottom of that. 40 report in terms of performance but I'm I'm in the top 40 of your 2000 that are subjects of the law and I'm working and engaging so so this the, the temptation of the brand hit yes okay it possibly means that factories are closed or whatever but I'm not sure that in the long run in in the wider bigger vision or the to be able to take a step back I'm not sure that, that was the progress that we hoped it would be uh, I'm not sure that we can evaluate it or claim it as the progress that we want versus fear, driving people through fear. I don't believe that that gets the best out of people. Uh, so to me, it's about aligning and scaling the past. So it's, it's getting that level playing field. All of the companies that are subject to the laws, um, starting with California, then potentially the UK or Australia, wherever the transparency has gone. And then pulling people together who work all over the world on transparency to align and scale so that there is one transparency piece of global legislation that people have to disclose around instead of these variants. Um, And then we need to create confidence because we need to have uh, feedback loops and the feedback needs to invite much more proactively and much more directly um, the CSR department uh so yes you can have your legal department yes but but more importantly i get the sense that in terms of the evaluations um we've gone to consultants because we don't want the authenticity and the credibility and the autonomy of the evaluation to be skewed by the participation of any one particular brand that is also part of what's being evaluated um so So for us, what we see is a necessity for a space where you have a a safe space, just as we would create a shelter for children who can come in and have that month to trust this space and have the best version of themselves show up. We need to create a safe space for companies, for the brands that are subject to this law, that is paid for by others. If I were to reach out to the billionaire and say, yeah, pay for this space. Pay for a space that is a shelter, a compassionate. Compassion is not something that is selective. It's really easy to be compassionate to the victim and the survivor. How's about we have, where's our compassion for perpetrator? Because that's me. Uh, for every piece of fish I've eaten, that's we're all perpetrators in the system until we change it. So I want to see, I want to see what happens when you give Corporate, not that cor- corporate will be kind of eye rolling, saying, "Well, thanks. We don't actually need you a <laughs> compassion space. We've got all the, you know, all the resources of whatever." It probably doesn't make sense to them, but I do believe that you need a space where CSR departments can share. This is what we're doing. You can break people into silos. You can break people into cross sector sharing. It's uh, cross sector sharing of solutions. But to me, it is to drive people into a space where they come up with path and benchmarks with a sense of urgency. And to me, that's a year round discussion. It's not something that needs to happen only annually because that's not enough. It's not enough, it's not fast enough, it's not urgent enough. Uh, But there is a way with which if you got that conference off the ground as a sort of permanent virtual feature that could harness people like Consumer Goods Forum or uh, sorry, yes,
0: I have a question as to how do you see that relate to the COVID uh, pandemic now that we're actually not shopping that much? Yeah.
1: So, uh, so this I
0: mean, a- wearing I've been wearing the same pair of clothes for, I don't know, for three months, just, you know, like three different ones, washing them because we're on our country house and not in the city where we yeah. are. So, and I realize right now I don't need all this stuff. So and I suppose that uh, many other people who are actually consumers of the the, the um, high level high end products that you're actually discussing, how is that impacting uh, now? Are we going to go back? Is it going to go? What is your assessment? Is it going to go worse?
1: So, now I that mean, I, yeah, I think um, my uh, I don't, I'm not so sure that I would I would. Uh, I have a, a gut response to it that's based on what we've seen in terms of transparency. And I think more than anything, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that there's recognition that this, is a, that this amount of turmoil is akin to how you feel as a mother before you're about to give birth. It's kind of like, I'm not ready for this. I'm terrified. This is going to be really painful. And then you have the transformation of rebirth. Um, and I do believe that, this, that the level of turmoil, both from... Uh, both from COVID-19. COVID-19 was a real wake-up call because the reality is had transparency and artificial intelligence been used much more effectively and much more concretely and not this voluntary slow process or not way beyond recommendations. How's about it's mandatory? Um, you know, way beyond that to make it mandatory. Um, if we had the resources to evaluate properly then i think we could have driven ar ai and and complaints mechanisms and in internal and external evaluation inner values as well as external right so within a company you have internal uh, internal audits and external you have internal complaints mechanisms and external you have relationship which as collectives or with unions these are all kind of what is our value system and, and how is that reflected in our strategy as a company? Uh, do we take that value system make it part of our, our strategy? Or is it something that goes to the marketing department to be a function of our spin, how we would like to be perceived? So this comes back to this notion of measuring. Had we been getting transparency right and taking it more seriously, uh, then... Um, then we would have had the ability to measure, for instance, we're looking at the ability for blockchain and Bitcoin to evaluate uh, the safety of food supply chains. If you just take food, you you came into it from the consumption point of view, there's a certain amount of consumption that we have to have. Uh, But we could have had systems in place that could verify practices around our food instead of suggesting it to local farmers while wow, you're stressed with this Would you please put in place the following precautions to protect the public or the government who are eating the food too from COVID? Have we done that? No We could have done we could have been ready and prepared for COVID. And I think that needs to be acknowledged that transparency was a vehicle To scale that uh, that requirement and to encourage that shift in mindset now what I see is you see, I think first of all, what you see is people are incredibly stressed economically. And I think what that tends to mean is there's a desire to pull back to the old approach and to sit back on, this was our old way of having success. So let's sit back to the old way. Um, And we have to put this new stuff off the agenda versus drive through, lean in, lean into what the new is because you've now, this whole old system hasn't worked war has not worked to bring us peace we spend more on war than anything else do you feel that we're at peace no how's about we invest in waging peace so you know and and women and children and education um our trade systems have not worked to eliminate child labor forced labor and slavery they could have done this absolutely no economic argument other than this benefits a select few of us while the majority of us suffer the, the fallout. Same with pollution. Yes, your plant, your energy plant, or the work that you are doing in this localized factory or mine is possibly has this externality problem and issue of pollution that goes into the water system for everyone. Or it spews, you know, sort of emissions into the, into the atmosphere that you could be in Atlanta, but you're affecting people in Finland. We have to work together as a community. So there's this beautiful moment that has happened with the pandemic to me. that yes, very scary. I don't want to be dismissive. I have friends who've lost loved ones. I'm concerned about my own loved ones. So very scary on some level. But I think that there is an element where you can look at what's scary and say, what does that do to us? How does that, does it wake up? Does it create that wake, wake up moment? How do you respond? Where do you go in the storm? How do you find your calm? How do you find your mindfulness in, in such turmoil? Are you are you prepared? And transparency for me is something that is a way if layered, if layered across the work as a lens, as a guide, as a driver, and as a lens. I think transparency offers up the ability for us to be more prepared as the pandemic unfolds, I think we've had, you know, first wave, some of us are still in, you know, ongoing ongoing wave, depending on how how it's been responded to. But this is an opportunity for really massive, profound, productive change, bringing in a new mindset that I think we are prepared for in a different way. Um, we, uh, we, We have seen something happen that in my life is something that is only happening You know, we've had these beats, we've had these moments where we have done something together as people on a planet. We've had the turn of the century that we thought was going to be the Y2K disaster, and then turned into this glorious, beautiful unveiling of the diversity of people around the planet. I don't know if you remember it, but I remember just watching people at different time zones come forward as they celebrated this extraordinary moment and just this fantastic diversity of people that we went way beyond tolerance to how it's about we celebrate and respect. We're in a kind of similar moment of all oh, this is, everything's going to fall apart. And then depending on how we respond to it, actually, actually we did something extraordinary we responded in unison as people across the planet um i think we've had moments of grief where we've grieved together at different points whether that's you know the death of diana as a as a princess created for me as an english person it created a moment in time where because of how we grieved together and this may again be something that doesn't feel like it's an appropriate fit but I think it showed how we had evolved, including the royal family. It it gave us that, it gave us the opportunity to voice and express something that had been going on, but just hadn't been crystallized into, this is how we talk about it in the world. We're at the same transformative moment, I think, with our economy. I don't think we, I can't imagine Firstly, I wouldn't say that falling back on what was old is as helpful as moving through something. I think if you, if you look at innovation, if you look at, you know, the high-rise building and the skyscraper came into Chicago after the Chicago fire. So there was the devastation of the Chicago fire, and then it gave the opportunity for people to build all of these sky rises. And so that innovation came from loss. Uh, I think the, the car took off because during the San Francisco earthquake, one of the things that had the car as a, as a vehicle take off was because as a result of the earthquake, the horses ran away and fled. And so suddenly the car became this much more reliable new way. Innovation, innovation is really critical in terms of what do we find as innovation? And this is where investment and sorry to, I saw you raise that, but the small company I think is the next stage for transparency to bring in, in terms of, can we have this level of disclosure that is required, mandatorily required of companies uh, on something that is easier and uh, to achieve. And that if you are, a large company, if that's I think it's, 30, it's under 36 million or 39 million in the UK uh, in terms of pound sterling and it's 100 million in California. That the large company, yeah, you've got access to tools and an anal- analysis and AI that the small company doesn't have. So you take the outcomes of that and you have, to, you have to democratize it, you have to share it, you have to have a sharing of data instead of sitting on some, some insight that you can profit from. You need to understand that with that, with this short time timeline that we have of 10 years, you have to share that with small companies. In other words, if you are sourcing responsibly, then you, uh, you outsource the data around this is, this is what we've discovered in terms of mapping our supply chain. And that's
0: exactly um, the question that I wanted to ask with respect to how do you see Transparency and this entire model in in necessary requirements being implemented while the quantitative easing occurs and how does this get implemented or how should I say, um, while the money is being made available how do we change the measurement criteria for the foundation of small and medium enterprises in creating jobs so that these criteria are being uh, observed and taken into consideration rather than going back to the old ways? Because that requires, as you said, a mindset, uh, but unless the le- legislation is in place to include that as an outcome, I'm, I don't know how how the company owners, the builders, the, uh, you know, yeah. whether small low or large are going to be implemented. So in other words, how I'm coming from the European context, how do we get the attention of the European union or the European commission or the, um, uh, the European president and the legislation to observe these requirements, the six Ps, if you, if
1: you so wish. Um, well, I think it's, I think part of it is to recognize it as an opportunity, which I mean, God knows if you're in that level of position of power and responsibility, that must be quite, that must be uh, quite tough. Um, but I do believe that, that there is something in the chaos and in the turmoil and in the storm, and in the storm of it, it is a huge uh, opportunity. And I know that the, uh, for me transparency is one tool it's 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 one it's one approach that i think could be helpful if it is if we deliver the promise of it we're not quite there yet we haven't really uh, we haven't really gotten to fulfill the promise of it or the philosophy behind it as a mechanism Um, so you have different metrics and different standards that no one entity uh could get to the bottom of in terms of what is best but i do believe that there are people who could there are people who could do that uh, there are people who could look at what is this at is it girls is it uh you know sort of uh is it very verita- like who are the people who design the standards that we are measuring and that's where for me, pulling the CSR departments in over our specific issue, pulling the CSR department into here, if I had a, uh, if, if my C-suite cut me a blank check to go make all the remedy that I saw that I would want to do, this is my vision of what I would do. Those are the people who have the experience who we need to get the download from.
0: From my personal experience, the CSR is more of a marketing gag. Uh, in each, you know, in large organizations. So they don't really have the power uh, unless, you know, it is mandated or watched by Wall Street or wherever the...
1: So but that say, but that's a top-down look on the effectiveness of CSR department. I, I guess my experience is to have met many people in CSR departments who are, who love their work, who are good at their work um and who are frustrated at the limitations of their work and the limitations that are put on them by c-suite from perspectives like you know sort of you won't necessarily hear it on the conference circuit because people aren't very open about it but you'll hear stories about people saying well you know i went to the board to like i went out into the field to assess it and i came up with this plan and i budgeted it out and we could see the solution was really clear and then we went to the board and they were kind of like turn around because if you tell us we have to do something so that is how they become disempowered and they become a marketing spin it's the, it's a similar thing in terms of certain you know certain companies in our industry in the film industry have somebody who is a diversity department person and they basically they're there to say oh yes we're dealing with diversity we have the diversity department but they're not empowered to actually do anything so that's where you have to so that's where measurement comes in so transparency in its, truest, in its truest way opens up a look at what is, what is your actual performance, not, is, not what is your policy. And I, I, I take on board the criticism that, oh, well, this is just looking at policy. And it's kind of like, well, can we go back to the time where we have 58 responses from thousands of emails because there wasn't even actually a policy? Not even for the people who said they were doing something, there was not a policy. Um, for very, very, few, for a tiny minority of companies, there was a policy, and very often, part of I think the NGO movement, very often that policy had evolved because of a nasty brand hit. So that's where the startup company can come in with something completely different. So if transparency can expand to include everybody who is a business. Then you've got a next game changer. You've got a next level game changer because you've got somebody in a startup company who, for instance, um, uh, I was recently at Copenhagen, uh, Copenhagen uh, Fashion Summit. I think it is um, that that was uh, a, a, the apparel industry has been brought together to look at inventing innovative materials and uh, and people who are you know evolving materials that. Uh recycle plastics and then put it into a shoe that is sold by this this or, or that company. Uh, but you also hear from startups in terms of well, we made carbon offsetting part of our annual budget. Uh, to me, if we had enough meta-analysis of transparency, if we had enough systems engineers coming in to evaluate what, this is where we started, this is how we, where we've ended up, this is where there's overlap and common ground, this is where there's slightly irritating different approaches in different, com- in different countries. How we align it, and, and part of that means that we can measure good, better, best, dreadful and lethal then when we have those rankings if we can then bring to that if we can bring back what we were talking about in terms of the 150 billion not all of that will be forced labor in our product supply chains and not all of that will be international supply chains but can we identify what's local what's owed where and to who then we have resources that potentially we could pledge back into improving the system and remedying so that it's not a function of, oh, we, found, we just found a slave case through our internal complaints mechanism. We actually just found a case of a factory owner raping a worker woman. So let's cut and run. Let's go find another factory somewhere else. That doesn't help that woman and it doesn't help that factory owner. And it, so it doesn't help perpetrator and it doesn't help survivor and it puts into unemployment everybody else. What we need to do is lean in, do the opposite. Uh, What we need to lean in uh, is to lean in to say, okay, so obviously here there's a problem. We need this person to go through a due process, whether that be punishment, whether that be civil. The company needs to understand that if your internal complaints mechanism shows up something that is illegal, you have a responsibility to pass that information on instead of just protect yourself. In other words, there's this conflict of interest over just an internal complaints mechanism of, well, I'm going to have to expose the fact that in our supply chain, this awful thing happened. What do I do with that information? Um, so that's where I think SRI community needs to, uh, needs to really make sure that there's oversight in terms of doing the right thing by the survivor. And I think transparency needs to get to that in a much more impactful way. But there are, you know, there are things that if transparency could be, you know, somebody smart enough as a systems person could look at it and say, okay, so here are the three different things that you need to disclose over to give you real measurement of impact. Somebody on the planet is smart enough or a group of people are smart enough to work out, what is that? Is that a function of the newest version of transparency goes across all companies, with a different level of response required from the big company and the, and the small startup, but it is, is it a function of can you prove through a financial order that this is what you spend on sustainability and this is your sustainability score, not your profit score, but your sustainability, social impact, SDG, ESG. These are your actual scores and that those are then made public so that we can rank and rate companies so that we can, Enable all consumers to have access to the information that enables them to change the world and vote for the world. They want every time they Every time they open their wallet and we've got a way to go on that. But we're definitely at the point with artificial intelligence and with AI and with brands looking at AI To know that we can actually assess in real time and deliver images in real time of the entire workforce. we also know that we can map map the supply chain in ways things that brand said we weren't able to do that for that's just unrealistic we can't do that and so therefore we're doing none of it um like these we have to sort of clock our own level of bias and to what to what degree are we using something as a get out or an excuse an excuse to not take action when we should be taking action so the the credibility of the evaluation the trust For compliance to work, it has to have ethics that create trust for everybody and buy-in, so that it it isn't a it isn't a judgment call on people. It inspires and triggers innovation and competitiveness, and it doesn't make us feel bad as human beings for being competitive. It inspires that. That's a good aspect of of us. And then I think I think transparency could be quite a critical piece, or uh, were critical, uh, critical for me, um, but it, a worthwhile addition to looking at what, uh, how is it transformative? Because if you were to just, if you were to take a huge company that, makes, that has a turnover of a billion and you take a tiny company that has a turnover of one million and you ask them the same question, what percentage of your revenue is put behind sustainability? And what score did you get? done. That's right. It's not necessarily done, It's not that it doesn't need revisiting, not that the metrics of it and systems, we have to watch systems and shift with them and adapt with them. But as a starting point, maybe that's more informative for, for people as well. And then I think there's also another thing of, I think economists have this vital role in terms of helping us work out what we need to sacrifice in the short term in order to thrive in the long term.
0: Yeah which is what I was trying to say is that um, (laughs) what you just described is uh, totally in line with the new um, initiative of the European Commission along uh, Financing Sustainable Change and within that there are three areas, um, major areas, one is the taxonomy you know what is it that we're trying to achieve And uh, number two is disclosure, which is basically the transparency aspect that you discussed. And um, and number three uh, is the um, benchmarks against which, how do you measure uh, success or failure? And I think once such legislation is in place or recommendation of the EU commission in the uh, case, that I, I believe that people begin to shift their minds because they know that if they do not implement it, uh, they will get, you know, some sort of punishment, you know, financial uh, punishment by the European Commission. So I think that this is a good way um you know and i i was wondering whether you or somebody in your organization is working with the european commission along those lines because that would be you know within the consultations that they're having and they're all, all taking place in an open uh, way.
1: We, well we would love to um it's for us it's really a function of resources and and currently our organization is uh, we have one staff member who's just just, just come come on board so we're a pretty small organization that Um, I guess just has a history of having watch it unfold and watch the impact unfold. Um, And I think what, I think for transparency to work, it has to align and it has to simplify and it has to be done credibly. And I think we need to shift, we need to shift into being able to have access and have understanding that for me, the, for me, the objective would be to, Yes, potentially engage in conversation if I was invited into the European process, um, or to participate in that, but to also align it with Carol- with California through an upgrade or through an amendment, and I'm, I'm uh, uh, and to encourage that around the around the world, and, and the center of that, the focus of that could be Europe. I mean, I mean, why not? It's not. It's uh, I think the biggest mind shift that we have to get to is to stop thinking about hierarchies and top down or bottom up it's an ecosystem we're all connected around an ecosystem and networks so one person does this and the other person you know we have to give and take so it's it's not um i do believe that there is a way with which transparency could be designed to both be iterative to open up uh, innovation and the possibility of innovation and new things to come in. Uh, you know, what's the new Bitcoin? Um, and I think, but I also think that it has to, we have to trigger and activate confidence in the consumer and the belief that we can change it. And then I also believe that the, um, I think if we went back to the chart, there was one of the things that we, that we had in the chart was also in the PowerPoint was the, our relationship to the SDGs. And the siloing off and I I understand that they have a different approach. But if you, if you don't prioritize slavery, if you put slavery and ending slavery and forced labor on the back burner, as we always have um, Then we will never get there. Uh, And we had research that was recently done that shows that I think when it comes to corporations, uh, we've spent something like over ten billion dollars protecting product through uh, engaging uh, law enforcement around shoplifting. Just shoplifting alone, we spent all of this money, taxpayers' money, protecting product and profit. We've not spent one billion. We've not spent four hundred million in that same time span protecting people who are the guardians of planet. So we have it all the wrong way around so when you are talking about who is it who is it that makes the decisions around change and who is the who are the people that has to meet a date that has to be seen through a diversity lens and that has to be people from all walks of life because the survivor needs to have a voice the worker needs to have a voice and I sometimes think that we're trying to find solutions, forgive me, through a, an elite group who have an elite experience that in order to maintain your humanity within it, slightly disassociates from the problems on the ground. That is our tendency as human beings. Um, so I think I would see it in terms of going back to this commission. A commission has to be created that, has, that is tasked with a year round conversation uh, that breaks people into silos. I also think that the trust aspect helps transparency take off and helps unlock, my hope would be that it would unlock a voluntary approach to it by perhaps putting in, this is something that we looked at before, a sunset period. So that you, let's see that you imagine if you had to have your transparency disclosure, um, you, you have your transparency disclosure, Uh, You have a deadline and a date, kind of like your tax year. You disclose what your score is and how well you've done. Um, But then your reports are evaluated by people with the right skill set who understand it, instead of a bunch of maybe uh, people who are, you know, sort of so engaged in the issue uh, that they look at those reports and they misunderstand them or they misinterpret them or they misuse them in order to have a brand hit. For instance, if you are a company and a brand and you've been listening and you've been looking for slavery and you found, let's say you found 100 people in your supply chain. um, And you put that into your report and then you're a brand that couldn't give a monkeys, couldn't couldn't give a damn. No, we didn't really look for it. No, we didn't actually find any. Oh, we found one. Yeah, we found one. It's too simplistic to say the person who found one is a better performance than the person who found a hundred. So we have to work out what that is. We have to work out just the fact that somebody doesn't disclose is that because there's a deterrent and we can only do that by entering into a conversation. But at the moment, the more volatile and irresponsible or unfair um, or unchecked the movement is in seeking brand hits, the more brands have a kind of see an enemy response of, well, hang on a minute. That wasn't fair. Or, or they don't trust, they don't trust that response because uh, brand value is based on reputation as much as it is physical assets. So we've got a lot, we've got a lot to unpack, but it's, but it's doable. If it's resourced.
0: Brilliant. So um, last question, if you were to um, call onto our listeners and watchers what would you like in the perfect good, what would you like to ask them how can they get in touch with you how can they support you how can they donate or what can they do how they can connect with you and uh well that's so
1: sweet of you we would love for people to go to our website assetcampaign.org a w s e t campaign dot campaign.org and and really what I firmly believe is that if, if people can make a $10 monthly contribution to end this, uh, if we could get lots of people to do that, it would be great if it was 25. It would be great if it was a hundred, but I don't want somebody to feel disempowered. If I, I can give $1 a month, um, that that would be meaningful for us to, to have sustainability in the work because currently we don't take corporate money and we don't take government money because that, enables us to have authenticity and freedom and flexibility of voice Um, but the work in order for us to seriously step back in and have a more consistent consistent voice in the in the conversation around transparency and nudging it up and how do we how do we improve it we need sufficient resources to know that it can be fully staffed uh, fully staffed and consistent instead of just tapping in and tapping out when when and as we can, which is, which is not really enough. But uh, when you look at the, when you do a breakdown of what has been spent on this issue, we need economists or we would love to engage economists who would help us work out. What has actually been spent over time uh, since 2000, since trafficking and slavery has become really prevalent. What has actually been spent by philanthropists as well? To solve this issue, because I have a feeling that as a communal, as a global community, we've probably spent more on developing Xbox or building a sports stadium or building a tunnel somewhere so that we can have, you know, less traffic congestion or, you know, building a golf cart that we can remote control, move around Mars because we've done, we've done, we've done the dirty on this planet. We've kind of messed it up. So let's go and live somewhere else. Let's create heaven on earth. (laughs) Oh, what a wonderful
0: way to end this. Let's create heaven on earth. So thank you so very much for your time and your passion and engagement in making the world a better place. It's been an honor to have you. And this is just the beginning of um, what I would love to, to hope for a wonderful conversation in making the world a better place. So that would be great.
1: I feel you're so generous. I feel like, um, yeah, there's something about, there's something about my passion that definitely one of my stretches is to be more concise. Um, so I feel like we diverted from a lot of the questions that you, um, that you have poised So maybe we come back and with that first section, maybe we can do it in stages and come back and be more specific on, uh, I don't want to presume on your time, but um, to be to sort of drill in again on the very specific questions that you wanted to ask well uh, I did I did ask and I
0: I'm I'm so very should. grateful okay. for <laughs> yeah for taking the time see um to to give us what has heart meaning to you and um I appreciate us to information and knowledge and a state of the world that most of us are not aware of. So I think this is more than we could hope for, and uh, so thank you so very much for your passion. And please don't change anything about that. We uh, need
1: that. No, but uh, you know what we didn't look at? Uh, just as uh, uh, go look at the World Economic Forum. Yeah, yeah, we could uh, risk assessment. Uh, uh, because I think in the diagram that I wanted to bring up. So here we have, we have, uh, and this was the Greta effect, right? (laughs) You have climate action failure at the top, you have extreme weather, you have biodiversity. Look where illicit trade is in terms of people's consciousness. And illicit trade is human trafficking, trafficking of people, people are product, you know, people who are commodified. Not because they should be, but that's where illicit trade sits in terms of global risk. Uh, But if you look at the things like social instability or governance failure or unemployment or fiscal crisis or food crisis and food threat, illicit trade is way, way on the bottom. And part of that is to me, when I look at this chart. And I think, oh, these are the people who are making the decisions about how we trade and how we work in the world. They are they have deprioritized the thing it is the most shaming, which is that climate and how we treat the planet and how an environmental footprint, environmental footprint is hugely connected to human choices, social choices, C-suite choices. Uh, floor prices in terms of what happens further down your supply chain and tears. Have you collectively crashed floor prices to to being non viable, never mind getting us to a point of thriving. Um, you know, it's, it's what is done by human hand. Human hand and human footprint. It's called environmental footprint. That's us.
0: Yes. And this is why I'm, and this is basically how we connected uh, because yeah. this is, you know, as a member in the club of Rome, this is what I, I do within, you know, my own area of application and expertise, trying to create the companies that you're basically a uh, small medium enterprises that are basically being called by you to become more aware. Um, yeah, how they
1: deliver. it's. I think transparency is a way to. It's an equivalent, if you like, of uh, organic certification. No organic farmer could find traction or find a distribution mechanism or a way to define themselves in the space without a way to define themselves in the space for the consumer. So transparency and c- transparency uh, outcomes. Uh, around other things like ESG metrics or, you know, gears or whatever, whatever it is that is up and coming. And we see lots of them. There are lots of them at the moment that need to be pulled together. What is your, you know, there are various different ways that transparency can be the lens on people's actual performance. Um, So thank you. Thank you for taking the time and Um, I didn't really mean to pick on the World Economic Forum, but I sort of did. Um, So um, I think it's really important to remember that we need to ask people who are trapped in poverty in terms of what that experience is, because we we make presumptions on what that is. Um, and, and And we also make presumptions that they're not gonna have something smart enough to bring to the table, which I think you might pro- I get the sense you would agree is absolute rubbish. Um, and we have to be aware that we are making presumptions all the time and that we have to have evidence and scientific evidence and review and all the rest of it and to really get to to get to progress. And we have to make it urgent, not the bottom. Well, when it
0: comes to poverty, my dear friend, I grew up extremely poor in communist Romania. I went to school without food very often. Mm-hmm. Uh, my teeth are destroyed because I didn't have the proper nutrition nor hygiene I didn't have an indoor bathroom until my immigration to Germany at age 16 my um, my toes are totally crooked because I didn't have the proper shoes and so on so I I walked that so I grew up with it and I know I don't want it again and that's why I did everything I could uh, while living in a democratic country and, uh, you know, to get out of it. But this is exactly why I'm doing what I'm doing today, because I want to help and make a difference and prevent the other people from.
1: Well, from look at going. you, Your your shining, clear spirit, an example of having walked that journey. You've brought that, you've turned that, that phase of your life and that really, traumatizing challenging i'm so sorry that you experienced that but you've brought that experience with you you can never that's a part of you so that when you look at this thing that is going on and you have such huge success such enormous this huge brain (laughs) this huge or this effective brain your heart is not disconnected from it because you've lived that you know, and and you this could is what we,
0: connects me with you, with your heart, and so I'm deeply, deeply grateful, and uh, for for all your work. And um, so let's be that the beginning of uh, our collaboration. Yeah. And I invite everybody listening to uh, or watching to join us. So yeah. thank you so much. Uh, be blessed, you. and uh, we'll get in touch soon again. Bye bye. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Bye. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. For more on Dr. Bosazan and the investment turnaround, visit investment-turnaround.com.